Welcome to the Sausage of Science. I am Chris. And I am Kara. And we are stressed as heck. I leave for Finland in six days. Oh my God. And I just started a crowdfunding for research that has me more stressed than any grant proposal I've ever written. But I got to bring up that very research in my class just on Wednesday. Awesome. Yeah. My students were talking about body modification. And so I'm like, I know this cool guy who does this cool study about tattoos and the immune system. Was this your anthropology at the extremes class? Yes, humans at the extremes. Yeah. So on that topic, because of all the social media promotion I've been doing, psychologists from England got in touch with me and is asking me about if we've considered doing research with these people who just pump tons of black ink into themselves to see how much physically they can endure, which I just think is completely fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, we should collaborate. Best things come out of collaboration. And wasn't it you that told me the lizard man is from the Albany area? The lizard man. The guy who's like tattooed his entire face and body to look like a lizard. He bifurcated his tongue. A person who had um, gotten a sub-incision in his penis contacted me. That might be the same person, because I think he may have done that too. I didn't know that. <laughs> This documentary was fascinating. I learned a lot more than I expected. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot to learn about human variation. I love it. I love our job. I love that. This is when we go down these internet holes and literature holes. I like it even better when it's a literature hole and I can like find something that's not on the internet because there's so much that's been done well before the internet. That's our four parents in anthropology studied that, that we're doing this for our jobs. It's awesome. Yeah. And then we get to talk about it in class. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Exercise size fizz, I went down a rabbit hole the other day of the history of women in sports and how women weren't really allowed to take part in sports because it would damage their reproductive potential. Oh my god, that's right. Yeah. My class was horrified. They had no idea. Like, just as, did you know this, that just as recently as 2014, that was the first time women were allowed to take part in ski jumping and they were trying to frame it as, oh, there just aren't enough women who ski jump to really have it be in the Olympics. And then there's a quote from the actual guy who runs the International Ski Federation saying it just isn't a good idea for women medically to take part in ski jumping, which is oh, will damage their, their, you know, their tender, tender uteri. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. 2014. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. My wife and I were going through reproductive assistance for our kids. There were recommendations that we reduce and we kept pushing them on why. And it came down to, well, we just don't think you can love three or kids as much as two. And wow. it would be too hard to take care of. I'm like, so there's no medical reason. You just have this belief. And I think there's a lot of, that out there and historic, you know, so. Um, just, at, just at the gym last week, I had a guy tell me to be careful not to lift too much weight or my boobs will shrink. <laughs> That's right. So it's still around. <laughs> anyway, Chris, who do we have on today? So with us, we have Dr. Catherine Oates, Kathy Oates. Uh, Kathy and I, full disclosure, work together here at the University of Alabama. I thank her for my job and much mentoring along the way. And with Dr. Oates is Hannah Smith, who is a master's student who was one of our undergrads and I taught her in intro to bio and and Kathy took her to Peru. She's one of our rock stars and we really like being able to share with you research that's being done not just by our PhD peers but that we have students that are just as capable of doing a lot of this amazing research as, as anyone else and give them a chance to, to speak for themselves. It's always nice to brag on them. Yeah, it's true. So welcome. Thank you. Hi, Kat. 
thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for taking the time out to actually be interviewed. So the paper that recently came out in AJHB is A Decade of Rapid Change, Biocultural Influences on Child Growth in Highland, Peru. So for all of you listening, that's the thing to reference and look up when you're done listening to our podcast. And I guess I wanted to start out just with the location. So Trigger Pampa, is that how it's pronounced? Uh, so how did you settle on this site? How did you find it? How did it come about? Give us that backstory. Interesting. When I was looking for a field site as a PhD candidate. I wanted to work in the Andes. I had been in the Andes with an archaeological dig out of Stanford right after I graduated undergrad, John Rick, and I'd helped out. I was a manager on that project and really fell in love with the Andes and also with the issue, with the question of treatment choice, because I saw Native people there healing, doing miraculous healing. I mean, some of our crew, one of our crew members would probably be dead now if it weren't for one of the the senior women there who treated her right and so i got this great idea to do this work and then talk to one of the leading md phds fernando carieses in lima and said oh i want to do this study blah 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 after i'd spent five months in, in the andes on the archaeological project i want to look at traditional medicine and i've learned that he was like the grandfather of that in, in peru and he said a great idea but you need to get your tools first you need to go to grad school and i said oh, okay so i did and i pursued that issue well I was in the central highlands then, and I looked around. I made this tree structure of everyone I talked to, like so-and-so said to talk to so-and-so. This was pre-email, right? And I queried every Andeanist I could find to try to find a research site, hopefully in Peru, maybe in Bolivia. I wasn't sure. Long mm-hmm. short, um, I, I hit up with Douglas Sharon from the Museum of Man at the time, and he's done the famous films on Eduardo the Healer. Took me under his wing. He said, come to northern Peru, to Trujillo. I can introduce you to people, and that's how it started. And then I went up into the Andes with a crew of medical students and doctors who were doing a vaccination campaign. And I visited 23 villages or hamlets. And then I chose Chugapampa for that because I was trying to replicate the James Young study on treatment choice in Mexico. And so I needed a hamlet or a village that was a certain distance from biomedicine, didn't have biomedicine in the village that had, it was a certain size, blah, blah, blah. So Chugapampa turned out to be a wonderful place. And it's beautiful. Is it (laughs) And that's how I chose it. So I didn't have an advisor work. One of my advisors worked in Nunoa, a physical anthropologist. Uh, he was a physical and I was cultural and so he helped I found it sort of by uh, good luck yeah and so in the paper you also state that there was a 20-year gap uh, from when you went and to when you came back and Chris tells me there's quite the story and I know you can't share all of it but if you're willing to let us in a little bit I'd love to hear what happened well, yeah well given the brief nature of this chat we're having now I will make it very brief and anyone who really wants to know more I suppose it's can wait for the movie <laughs> Peru at the time was in the grips of the Shining Path, the Sendero. They had not entered the area where I was working in, in the La Libertad, that's the state or department, and I was up in the Andes, east of the city of Trujillo, the coastal city of Trujillo. Well, I thought, oh good, that'll be a good place to work because they haven't really entered the area. Prior to my coming, there was a rumor of a white woman who led the column of Senderos who had killed people and blah, blah, blah. So there was this suspicion 
suspicion about me when I first arrived. Who's this white woman? I was mid twenties. I didn't have any characteristics. I thought of a terrorist, but everybody in my hamlet got to know me and nobody thought anything more about it. Well, when you know, after about a year and a half, thank goodness I was on the coast getting my mail at the time. I used to come down for about three days every month or so, get a shower, <laughs> eat something, eat potatoes, get my mail. Again, pre-email, right? And there was an attack on the town that was the uh, district capital, two hour walk from Chupapampa, where I was staying, but Chupapampa pertained to this this district capital. So anyway, there were two guards killed. Everybody swore there was a white woman. And then so they came looking for me and it's so complicated. It's so much circumstantial evidence. It's just bizarre, but it wasn't me. (laughs) I was on the coast. There were some people who threw the blame onto me to get it off of themselves. Mm. People I learned later, people I knew who were actually Sendero. Mm. They pointed out my house. So these guys, guards came up, looked at all my stuff. I mean, it's a wonder I have any field notes left at all. Uh, I was leaving to come back to the Highlands and I picked up the morning paper and saw where there had been an attack in Hulkan, which is the name of the district. And instantly I knew, oh my God, they're going to think it was me. I just knew it. I waited. About two hours later, the way things used to go, I, a message was delivered, hand delivered to me by paper on a little piece of slip of paper. It was sent down through drivers, got to my doorstep. It was a doctor, in fact, who, who was able to arrange some of it, somebody I knew from the Hukan, and said, do not come back, they're looking for you. And so I spent several weeks trying to proclaim my innocence, and they tried to trap me in many ways, and just, let's just leave it at this, they had a shoot the kill order on me, so I had to leave the country across a forest border. Wow. So I had to go that, there. That is an intense story. And then my notes got snuck out inside a sack of potatoes. <laughs> uh, Stories from the field, that's about as intense as we're going to get, I think, for a little while. That's, that's, wow. And that's really, it, it, that's the bare bones of it. It was a terrifying time. I'm sure. Uh, and, and, yeah, I, I had PTSD from it. Yeah, it was, it was. I wasn't really scared at the time. It was like, God, the, kid. the funny thing was, just a little detail that makes it interesting. I had a friend, Bonnie Glass Kaufman, who's now at Utah, University of Utah, who was working on the coast with shamans. I had told her my story. She presented it to a curandera, a woman shaman. And the woman, knowing nothing about me, said, she's got to go. She's got to be out of the country within 48 hours. And my in-country advisor was Duncan Pedersen, who was editor of Social Science and Medicine for a while. Mm-hmm. I called him and I said, I don't, he said, believe her, get out. I get to Ecuador. I pick up the paper. There had been a countrywide sweep where they, they detained 2,000 people as being suspected terrorists. So I would certainly have been in that kind because of, everybody knew where I lived. My goodness. Yeah, that is quite the story. But fortunately, you were right. able to come back. Yeah. 20, years later. 20 years later and i dreamed of going back i love the highlands i used to have all these scenarios in my dreams about how things had changed and i kept in contact with people and then it got easier and easier with email and then skype and all that so and i even got research done i have a fabulous research assistant do i not have a like, she's unbelievably yes. good she's- and so i could send her lists of questions and she go get data for me well i mean i kept up with it but i couldn't really do full-scale research and then it was meant to be 2011 i got dual offers to give a talk in Lima and the two had not coordinated one was the Catholic University and one was med school and mm. they wanted me to come like two months apart from me I said hey how about if you guys like talk to each other and I'll just come down once and somebody meet me at the airport because I used to check over and over with people I knew in security people it's like is there any chance I'm still on the list <laughs> you know like when I go to the airport they're going to nab me and they said probably not after 20 years Purdue's not that organized 
so I had a party meet me at the airport and I got through passport control and here I am. So I've never had a problem since then, except they all thought people could not be convinced I was not dead because there was also the corollary rumor that the police had killed me after I killed these two police. Mm -hmm. And there were people who swore it and they swore it to people in the hamlet I worked in Chula So except for those who I kept in contact with, nobody believed I was alive. So when I came back in 2011, I'd be walking along I mean, you'd see people's eyes just I thought you were dead <laughs> they thought they'd seen a ghost and mom and my family and friends there they couldn't convince anybody otherwise because the story was so rampant that I was gone and, you know gossip is a gossip in the Andes that's the power of social control it has and then the means for getting bored out so anyway that's probably too long but so Hannah you have been on a number of papers and presentations with Dr. O so tell us a little bit about you getting down there and your experience. Um, well, it was really amazing. I actually went to a field school that Kathy had recommended to me. So I went up in 2015, the summer prior to that, and we did a field school. And I was in a different area. I was in the Cayon de Wireless. And so I got to experience some of Peru there. It was a medical anthropology field school. So we saw people who were different kinds of healers. We got to experience a lot of things. And that was my first taste of Peruvian culture. So I was thrilled when I I was given the opportunity to come back mm. when Kathy asked if I would want to go. And so we went to a conference in Lima and then we went up to Sugar Pampa. And it, for me, it was like going to this place I had always dreamt of going. I had read so much about it and learned about all these people, did a lot of number crunching about a lot of people who lived there. And I had, there's Don Felipe, who is a huesero, a bone setter there. And I had seen the documentary they had made about him and he was a celebrity mm. to me. So getting to go and see what it was like firsthand mm. was amazing. I got to experience what life was like there, which formed the research and made it even more personal. And I loved it. I, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful experience. They live differently, but they live like mm. <laughs> let, let me add that, that Hannah started her freshman year with me as an emerging scholar. We have almost 40,000 students here and they picked 100 to uh, engage in research with select faculty, like the best 100. And so I I was fortunate it was the first year of the program to, to have Hannah and so we've been working together for five years and so she'd seen a lot of the data and the film and whatnot and read previous articles and helped me with conference papers and then she got to experience and she is the most hardy of any student I've had up there <laughs> <laughs> you know you never know because the high high altitude hypoxia mm -hmm. what we write about the paper it, it has physiological effects I mean he absolutely people out some people do not my husband for example cannot handle going to high altitude. He just stops functioning. The difficult thing for me there was eating and was eating as much as they wanted to. They give you it's so tough. much food, you have to find these second and third stomach. <laughs> that was the biggest challenge. <laughs> Which is because of the uh, increased metabolism and high altitude. Again, what we write about the paper, because it, it does have significant effects on a growing child, especially mm -hmm. if you're five, uh, because the caloric needs can easily double. I mean, the average male, 3,500, 5,000. I mean, they got to eat a bunch of females, about 1,000 less, you know, some 2,500 to 4,000, something like that, a day to maintain. Yeah. So since you kind of segued into it fairly nicely, let's actually talk a bit about the paper. And maybe Hannah, if you want to take this one, you can. So this work was kind of predicated on 
a suite of economic, social, cultural, and climatic changes that are going on in Peru and in the hamlet that you're working in. Could you briefly walk us through what those changes are? So there was a lot of things going on all at once. You have, as far as the political structure, so it used to be a campesino comunidad, kind of a communal thing where there's own property and it changed, or there's shared property, and now it's switched to private property. So people have their own land, which means they buy and sell that land, which is important for moving down to those gives you opportunity to sell that land, then you can then move somewhere else. Also, there's climactic changes, obviously. There's been a lot of variability in temperatures and rainfall, so you have drought and deluge, and you have just temperatures that are more erratic than they used to be, which is really harsh on the farming. So that's their main trade is potato farmers there. It makes it really hard when your crops are experiencing these very variable climates they didn't used to. And so they're not only getting less potatoes, but smaller potatoes. And so that's hurting their livelihood. And you also see there's mobility. Yes, mobility. So there's a used to be a long path to get back to the coast. So Trujillo is the coastal city she was talking about. And that's where people kind of used to go to, but now they go much quicker. So there's a bus actually that goes, and there was one that goes straight from Chugapampa. There was talk about them not doing that anymore, but it's, you know, a two hour ride now, maybe less to get there. And it's like $7. And so it's, it's a really easy pathway. So people will go there all the time. And so they have family systems that now transverse the whole coast. So they're complete networks. What Max the other one of the other contributors on this paper and doing his work in Trujillo has talked about is the fact that these are not actually two separate groups but a a connected network of people who are one family and social unit they're just extended across this terrain and so that has effects of how they live life and where they are at any given moment which we found to be important for growth especially um, in the youngsters and that's why we think that a highland hypoxia pressure is being released or attenuated in periods during a woman's gestation and, and then during the first few years of a child's life when they're really with their mom at all times because of the back and forth and back and forth so it, it gives the opportunity for catch-up growth these little periods of catch-up growth that you you just don't get at high altitude because of the the pressures right and then that being a really constant pressure all the time is what you know makes it a developmental change mm-hmm. that may be attenuated if you're not getting close to that constant yeah so with those results to kind of sum them up pretty quickly is that you found that this this highland population children were much bigger now than they were in the past and part of that you attributed to mothers being able to go down to the lowlands, but you also suggested other hypotheses for this, but also that these children, that that kind of head start stopped, that their growth was attenuated eventually. And so you brought up high altitude stressors, diet and medical care as potential causes. These were hypotheses as to why that head start kind of vanished after a few years. And so how do you tease that apart? You know, the contribution of, of each of those. The, the diet's what I find interesting because you, you start to see the children faltering in terms of height and weight at about four or five. In a way they didn't used to. And I think this is where the climate change comes in. I think they're, they are more stressed in terms of their economic resources and the yields from their farm, etc. Children have such high caloric needs that when they go off to school, which they do at around three or four, depending on if they go to the, the uh, kindergarten or not, but by four, they're, they're usually in first grade. They have to carry potatoes in their pockets. They have to eat. They have to eat because they just have to eat. They can't 
just have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They can't keep their calories up. So this was even happening prior when I was there 30 years ago, uh, before the, this decade we're talking about, that there was a bit of a flattening or at least a, the risk of it. And moms knew that, parents knew that. They were always trying to keep their kids' pockets full of food when they went off to school. So that's part of, I think, why it's we're seeing even more of a dip now than we did before at that age because, because they are stressed in terms of diet and economics. And the diet... Um, there has been the introduction of junk food. I mean, you name it. You go to any conference and everybody, everybody's talking about junk food and its effect on, on body size and health the world over. There, no place is exempt. And so I think there's more access to that and that's probably not helping it. But they're protected that first couple of years of life because they're breastfeeding. So I guess on that was a little bit, you looked at both males and females in this, in this study. And I was curious if you saw any differences between males and females in the level of ketchup growth and then the level of attenuation. Was there any difference between the two? You know, just from when I was crunching it, I think that the biggest thing that I noticed was that when you're comparing these data to the WHO, so the World Health Organization charts, the males tend to look like they're falling a little bit lower than the females just because there is, I think, a bigger size difference inherently in sugar pumping males compared to American or, I mean, the WHO graphs are based off of nine different populations of breastfed of children, but at the same time, it's an average of that. And so I think that's really what I saw. I think that they, they, the trend was similar in both genders, but if anything, I think that those males are falling, perhaps they appear to be falling a little bit more below the girls. Yeah, they did. We just didn't have the numbers to test that statistically, but there's a definite trend. If you look at those charts, the boys are flattening out a little bit on that curve more than the Interesting. And I think that's something we've heard from other guests we've had on this show before, Chris, right? That males end up being a bit more affected by the stress than females. Yeah. Who was it? Was that Larry and Liz who talked about that? Larry and Liz, I think a little bit came from Morgan Hoke. Right. And there may have been one other now that I can't remember. But yeah, so that's not the first time. Oh, I think it was Rietti was talking about men being more affected by the stress. This wasn't children. This was adults. But Rietti Django, a grad student at Notre Dame, saw something similar that men were being more affected in Africa, correct. Yeah, you're right. So we're, we're seeing some interesting patterns now <laughs> developing in this podcast. And then maybe for the last question, I think this is a great phrase, biology of poverty. And it is honestly the first time I've heard it. And I was wondering if one of you could unpack that phrase a little bit for us and tell us what falls under the umbrella of the biology of poverty and why we need to study it and why we need to put that in context. Well, I wish I could claim I coined that term, but I did not. I borrowed it from Brooke Thomas. And and if you anybody's interested in, the, in a great treatise on that, that Goodman and, and Leather um, the biocultural synthesis. Biocultural synthesis yeah. in the around 90. They came out with a great edited volume that really goes into detail on that. What they're challenging us as anthropologists to do, especially physical anthropologists and bioculturalists, is to look at all the factors that really lead to physiological change, the social and cultural and economic factors, the biology of poverty. How do bodies morph? How do they develop or not when under the strains of poverty? There are real definite patterns cross-culturally there. And to not just assume that differences are genetic, but, but to really get a kind of a class lens on that and see just how deleterious poverty is in terms of our well-being and our growth. Chris, you might, you're well versed on that. You might want to jump in on yeah that. well i was just going to point out that in our last 
episode, we talked to Bill Leonard about the human adaptability project and its history. And early on, it was focused primarily on biology. And it wasn't until later, and when Bill was doing his dissertation work, that they really started looking at the role of poverty and parsing out what is, in fact, due to hypoxia and high altitude and what is due to the social conditions and challenging his own advisor, Roberto Frasancho's previous work. And so what we're seeing here, and, and we mentioned Morgan Hope, she also was on our podcast. She continued Bill's work there. What we're seeing is a, a much more nuanced approach. And the, the biology of poverty is one really important aspect to a biocultural synthesis, which includes respect to political economy. You'll note that we certainly tip our hats to Bill Leonard, mm-hmm. Leatherman, and, and Jim Carrey, and the whole Nunoa group for pushing the thinking ahead on that decades ago now. So I just really feel like I'm following in their footsteps. The only point with this article is that we need to reintroduce altitude as a sociocultural variable. Mm. It's not just a, st- a constant anymore because of the, the constant travel that people are undergoing. It's kind of undetected. There's really very little research on the extent to which people travel in the Andes. So mm. we hope we got, maybe got people thinking about that a little bit. Maybe they'll add that variable into their research in the future to account for that. Yeah. Yeah, we probably didn't have time for it today anyway, but we really do need to get Max, who is one of the co-authors on this paper back in, because he's right, probably writing his dissertation right now and he collected <laughs> some of this migration history in a social, using a social network approach. And he's got some pretty profound findings from what, I, what I've what i gleaned from my talks when he's not in his dissertation cave. Well, that's a future podcast right there. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I, I don't know if you have another question, Kara, but I, I want to ask Hannah, because I happen to know that she's headed to med school at some point. I am. Okay. So that's still a plan. So my question is, how has this prepared you to be the kind of doctor the world really needs? And my obviously biased opinion. Well, I do think that there was a reason why I ended up in this program. I wasn't done with anthropology. I will never be done with anthropology. So this gave me a little bit more of a foundation to stand on when I am faced with a bunch of naysayers, perhaps, in medical school. There's going to be some of them. I think that right now there is a big push to include more social sciences in the study of medicine. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful, serendipitous time for me to be entering the field because of that um, happens to line up. But I think that it's just going to help me look outside the the box. I think that as a physician, being able to consider these other factors and personalize medicine in a different way than is the big push right now. You know, there's a big genetic personalized medicine push, but there's so much beyond that, that personalizes medicine based off of your experiences and your environment that goes so broad. And I think that this paper alone shows you that, that there are so many factors that go into our bodies and our health and everything. And so I think that will prepare me for that. And it'll also guide my future research and what I find to be important to look at and what I don't narrow my vision onto certain concepts. So that's kind of what I think. That's a nice elevator pitch there. Yeah, it's perfect. She starts in August at the University of Maryland. Congrats. Also, let me say, watching through the camera, I can see how proud Kathy is of you, Hannah. (laughs) She's beaming with pride. So well done. Well done. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, any other questions, Chris? Are you I'm, good? I'm good for today. Yeah, thank you both so much.
for for being on the podcast with us. Well, thank you fun. for having Thank us. you, Carrie. You made it. You made it easy. I'm usually a nervous public speaker. Well, it's a lot easier, I think, through the computer. You get to kind of be in your own comfortable setting too, so that helps. Well, thank you all. We have been the Sausage of Science. I'm Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore ly on the Twitter thing. And I am Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabak on the Twitter. And how? What's the best way to find out more about y'all's research and stuff and things? You can go on my website, University of, of Alabama Anthropology Department website. I'm easy to locate. We'll include it in the program notes. And Hannah, you want to be found? Right now, Research <laughs> Gate is the best life, so I will keep the department updated. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thanks.